This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So as we begin this evening, I want to manage expectations. If you got a handout, is that all that's left? Thank you. If you didn't get a handout, I got about three left. Anybody need one? All right. So the, the expectations I want to manage of where we're going in this course. Now, you'll recall that in our first lecture, which I had to spread over two weeks, so if you're following the syllabus, you'll see we are a week behind now. Uh, but I think we will be able to get caught up. I'm really confident we will make this time up. But for the two weeks we spent on the first lecture, we compared and we contrasted secular theories of knowledge. And we specifically looked at rationalism, which says knowledge is innate, it's within you. Empiricism, knowledge comes from experience. And fideism, that knowledge is simply a blind faith. Now, we compared these against biblical faith that teaches us that knowledge of any value comes from divine revelation. Now, we determined that only from divine revelation can we establish a biblical or a what we call a Christian worldview. Any worldview that is not informed by divine revelation, we've discussed, was a secular worldview. Then in our second lecture, we pulled the string on this concept of secular worldview and how secular, secularism, and secularization are all part of the devil's schemes as he strategizes against the Christian and the Christian worldview by specifically attacking divine revelation. This strategy includes the devil's own wiles, the wiles of men who are bent on deceiving and preaching false doctrine, and even using the lust of our own flesh to entice us to be enamored with the temporal world around us. So far, our lectures have built on each other. But here's where I want to manage your expectations. This evening's topic will allow, us to move, will allow us to move seamlessly from theories of knowledge to secularization to start talking about some of the strategies that Satan is using. In other words, tonight's topic does build on the first two lectures. But after this evening we are going to consider contemporary theological issues that may be related to each other, but they don't necessarily build on each other. Each lecture will be able to stand alone. So, for example, as we look at the, the attack on Pauline doctrine this evening and the doctrine of the church, it does not follow that those who reject or misuse the Pauline epistles will be pro-abortion, which is a topic for another lesson. Or if you misunderstand eschatology, which will be next week's lesson or topic, it doesn't mean that you're going to condone same-sex marriage. They're not connected that way. That may go without saying, but I just want to be clear that we're not building on each other. These issues are not related, and I in no way want to be perceived as advocating any of these are a slippery slope into another. Now, it may seem not obvious, but I want to be sure I clarify this so that we can manage our expectations of what a contemporary theological issue is. Often it may be something that you deal with, just this one thing, and you may not deal with the others. But last week I quoted from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. And I'm again quote this verse. But in the context tonight of the passage in which it is contained, 
So I'll begin with verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word, by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I'm sure this is a familiar passage. Paul is illustrating the marriage relationship by comparing it to the church. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. The husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And the husband is to love the wife. How is he supposed to love the wife? As Christ loved the church and gave himself or died for it. So there is an order of operations. Wife, church, is subject to the husband, Christ who loves and dies for the wife church. And the ultimate reason is clear. Just as a husband desires a chaste and pure bride, so Christ desires a pure and unblemished church. He will present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle. That idea of wrinkle there carries the idea of a streak. There are a lot of self-help books out there on marriage. In fact, most couples prior to getting married will either sit down with the officiant for some pre-marriage counseling. Maybe they'll read a book on a successful marriage or will endeavor to figure out, however they can, the secrets to a successful and fulfilling marriage. But what if I told you that we also have a manual for how we are to prosecute the church? What if I said there was a book or books that teach us the ecclesiastical doctrines required to maintain purity within the church? But what if I told you that just like most marriages who forsake those nuggets of shared with them in pre-marriage counseling or forget those good ideas they read in a self-help book or fumble through their own mistakes because they really did not consider the lessons learned from others, so also the church has either forsaken, forgotten, or fumbled the key doctrines that belong to us. They have forgotten these doctrines of the church that have been delivered to us through the undeniable and utterly reliable inspired word of God. But we have. And where are these doctrines expressly laid out? It's in the Pauline epistles. So I return to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 27, or I'm sorry, 5, verse 27, to capture the title for this lecture. Tonight's lecture is A Glorious Church, the Pauline Epistles and the New Perspective of Paul. Now, I debated on this title. In reality, we're going to spend very little time on this teaching known as the New Perspective on Paul. And even now, you might be thinking, new perspective on Paul. Was there an old one? What is this? And we'll answer that in a little bit. 
But for now, the title is simply meant to convey the idea that church doctrine comes to us through the Pauline epistles. And we are neglecting those epistles, and it has stymied our growth. And I'm going to explain why in the lecture this evening. In fact, I would say it has stymied our relevance in the world because we have neglected the Pauline epistles. Now, when I say Pauline epistles, I think it would help us to define what those are. They are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, I can't talk, Titus, and Philemon. Those are the Pauline epistles. If you recall from your knowledge of the books of the New Testament, I have left out several books. I've left out the Gospels. I've left out Acts. I've left out 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews, and James. And the book, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. We have lost, though, our relevance in the world because we have resisted really understanding these Pauline epistles. The relevance of the church and perhaps its relevance in the culture around us is a direct result of what we have done with what Paul teaches in the epistles. And, and here's an example of our lack of relevance. Gray Matter Research and Infinity Concepts released a report just a couple weeks ago. You might have seen it. They had, they had, they had surveyed 1,000 evangelical Protestants. Now, we do not consider ourselves evangelical. However, I think for the sake of this, we would find that this is very close to what we would consider uh, our beliefs. But they polled 1,000 American evangelical Protestants, asking their views on 14 different elements about the church they attend. And here's what was discovered. It's an eye chart. You all have struggled reading it, so I'll read it for you. There's 85% of these that were polled believe sermon lengths are acceptable as they are. They like how long they are. So think about the Sunday sermon or the Wednesday evening sermon. They like the length right now. 85% are content. But 8% want them to be longer. Look at this. 10% of respondents under the age of 40 want shorter sermons. 11% of respondents over the age of 70 want shorter. So it's pretty much the same. The older and the younger, only around 10% really want it to be a shorter sermon. But here's what I find fascinating. We talk about millennials and the new generation and how they have their face in screens and how they have iPhones and how they have all this and they have this short attention span. Among the younger adults who supposedly have a shorter attention span, only 7% want a shorter sermon. But here's the real clincher, that last one. 30%, almost one-third, want more in-depth preaching. One out of three that are sitting in the pew saying, Pastor, give me more. Think about your sermon. Craft it. Form it. I'm hungry. What this report tells me is one-third of those attending churches want more in-depth, neat teaching and preaching 
The person in the pew is hungry to learn the Word of God. And my question as a chaplain, as someone who, who develops my own messages, am I feeding that hunger? I do believe Christ will present to himself a glorious church. But I am convinced more and more, and I said this last week, that the glorious church is growing smaller and smaller. That great cloud of witnesses in heaven is getting fewer and fewer members from here on earth as we go along. And this is because, as we talked about last week, there are those who preach false doctrine and they are starving our churches. This is because, and this will be the outline for this evening, the church has either abused the Pauline epistles, confused them, defused them, or refused them. And we'll go through each one of what I mean by that. Abused them, confused them, defused them, or refused them. I hope to conclude this lecture, we'll con conclude this lecture with considering how we should properly use the Pauline epistles as it pertains to the doctrine of the church. So let's dig into this contemporary theological issue that has to do with how do we teach and preach Paul in our churches. So who is Paul? Now, I'm not going to give you the historical uh, meaning of Paul. You know who he was. He was uh, converted on the road to Damascus. Uh, he was a persecutor of the church, and then he was converted. Uh, you might remember from Acts uh, chapter uh, Five or six, he was there at the uh, Stony of Stephen. They laid their coats down at his feet. He was a young man, a member of the Sanhedrin. You can go to the book of Philippians and you can see his credentials. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I said I was going to give you all that. I just gave it to you. Let's talk, though, about Paul. Paul, the apostle, is responsible for 13 epistles. Epistles is a letter. It's a type of letter. It was a letter that was written to people to, to read and then share it with others. These 13 epistles consist of 6% of the entire Bible. And all of these epistles are written exclusively to church saints of the New Testament. Not one epistle is written to the Jew or even to the Gentile at large. It is written specifically to the church, to churches. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, wait, wait, wait. What about Hebrews? That was written to the Jew. It's got the name in the title. Now, I personally believe Paul wrote that book. But we're not told he wrote it. And therefore, we, don't, we really have no way of knowing. Now, I think the anonymity of the book is, is by design. Of course it's by design. It's God who authored it, and he chose not to tell us who wrote it. But the fact that Hebrews is anonymous only furthers, furthers the argument that I'm about to make about Paul. Paul is solely responsible for teaching the doctrine of the New Testament church. Now, you can go to other books of the Bible. We can go to get principles of Christian living and devotional truth and even theology from elsewhere in the Scriptures. But we get doctrines of the church solely from the Pauline epistles. And I want to be very clear about that. We do not get doctrine from the book of Acts. 
because that is a transitional book. We do not get doctrine on the church from the Gospels. Now we get the doctrine of salvation, but we don't get doctrine of the church. And, I, and, and I'm going to have to pull that apart for us so we can see what I mean by that. We can get Christ, principles of Christian living. We can get devotional truths. We can get theology from elsewhere in the scriptures. But we get doctrines of the church from the Pauline epistles. Paul uses language in his writings that is unique to the church. And while this is not necessarily language that doesn't appear elsewhere in Scripture, it is language that is purely ecclesiological. What do I mean by that? It's ecclesia is church. It is the, the doctrine of the church. Again, we don't go to the Old Testament and the book of Proverbs to get how our church is supposed to operate. How pervasive is Paul's dealing with the church? Well, this might provide some perspective. The word church, that word, that English word church, appears in the English New Testament some 118 times. It's the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out assembly. The Greek word ekklesia, from which the English word church is translated, that word occurs 121 times. So the English word church occurs 118 times, but the Greek word in the New Testament is the word ecclesia, and it's 121 times. So I wasn't really great at math, but that tells me there's three usages of ecclesia that actually aren't translated church. They're translated something else. And they are. They're translated assembly in passages of Scripture. The three times, all in the book of Acts, that the word is not translated church, it is translated assembly, and none of those are in reference to a religious gathering. So that's a very interesting thing to understand about the, the idea of church. It means a called out assembly, but we in our theology, and I say we, theologians have said, we could kind of shift that meaning of ecclesia to really it means now church, which is a called out assembly of baptized believers. But in classical Greek, ecclesia was used to just use for the word assembly. A group of people. And if you read Acts, you'll see that there's a time when the assembly is referring to a city assembly. You can see another time where it talks about that church in the wilderness. That church in the wilderness is a reference to Israel. In the Old Testament, they were not a church like we have of a New Testament church. They were, though, an assembly in the wilderness. So, of the 118 times the word is translated church, Paul is using that word 66 of those times. So Paul is responsible for more than half the usage of the word church in the New Testament. That's at 55%. This means that one writer uses the word a little more often than all the other writers combined. And all those other writers combined is only five that use this word. They're Matthew, he uses it in his book, in his gospel. Luke uses it in his gospel. John uses it in his gospel. James use it, uses it in his epistle. And whoever the writer of Hebrews was, he uses the word church, which again may be Paul. Luke uses the word 21 times, and his writings are purely historical narratives. So Luke is right behind Paul with the use, because Paul or Luke wrote 
the book of Acts. And you see the word often in the book of Acts, the word church. So Paul is writing about the church. He's writing to churches. Also consider Paul's salutation in several of his epistles. Both of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians begin this way. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. The epistle to the Galatians begins, unto the church of Galatia. And though we do not read the word church, it is clearly a church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to. So he begins, to the saints which are at Ephesus. Similarly, Philippians is to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. Colossians is to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. And finally, First and Second Thessalonians both begin with the salutation unto the church of the Thessalonians. Paul is writing to churches, and he is teaching these churches what the function and purpose of the church is to be. And he uses words that have, been, have very technical definitions for the church. Words that, again, do occur elsewhere in Scripture, but words that Paul either nuances or contextualizes by expanding their definitions. And the main way he expands a definition of a word that you might see in the Old Testament is he'll take a word that is used throughout the Scripture and he'll expand it to include the Gentiles. That they now are included as recipients of the gospel. So what grace might have mean in the Old Testament has ex an expanded definition in the New, and Paul... He mentions grace 84 times. He mentions truth 51 times. And he makes a reference to justification 35 times. Words you would see in the Old Testament. But truth in the Old Testament had a different meaning to the Jew than it does in the New Testament to the church. Because now the Gentile, that's you and me, have been grafted in. Again, they're not new words that Paul uses, but they do have new applications. Even applications that would have made first century Judaism very uncomfortable. Paul's writings were provocative. And by design, his application of some words to the Gentiles achieved their inspired purpose to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. Because the gospel was being offered to those, as the Bible says, who were not a nation and to a foolish people. That's a quote from Paul in Romans chapter 10, 19, when he was actually quoting Moses from Deuteronomy. The gospel was being offered to those who are not a nation and to a foolish people, unlearned. We did not grow up in Hebrew school. So sound New Testament doctrine exclusive to the church is Pauline. In other words, church doctrine is Pauline. To fully appreciate this and understand what I'm saying about Paul's teaching, you have to understand, though, a very important theology. And that is called dispensational theology. Now, I think since I brought the term up, it'd be helpful to pause for a moment right here and talk about what I mean by dispensational or dispensationalism. Now, you can see the suffix ism on this word. As I've indicated in previous lectures, that is a key indicator that we might want to be wary of it. 
This is why I don't like the word dispensationalism. I like the word dispensational. You say, well, why? Aren't they the same? Is that a, a difference without a distinction? I think it does have a distinction. I'll explain why. Dis dispensational theology has often been twisted, abused, sometimes completely manipulated to form extra-biblical thinking or teaching. This is why dispensationalism, it comes in. Now, if I were to invite you up to the uh, offices, you'll see the Frontline magazine is sitting there, and on the cover it says dispensationalism. I'm getting over my dislike for the word, uh, but uh, I don't like the word because it becomes, it quickly becomes extra biblical. I trust you'll hang with me here as we look at this, and you'll see, I, I think you'll agree with me by the end. There are those who reject dispensational theology entirely because there are those who have taken it to its extremes and have found themselves well outside of what the Bible teaches. Those who reject dispensational theology tend to have their own definitions of what that theology really is. But not all teachings of dispensationalism are wrong. Some teachers are errant and some have well earned the ism moniker. And those teachings should be avoided. But we will talk about some of those teachers, teachings later in this lecture. But for now, we will define dispensational for ourselves and not let others define it for us. And so here is an excellent place to start. I didn't bring it here with me. I, it's sitting there in my bag. But we have a constitution here at the church. And our constitution, another eye chart for you there. If you've got great eyes, you'll be able to read this. This comes from Article 2.01, letter B. Let me read to you from our constitution. We believe that the scriptures interpreted in their natural, literal sense reveal divinely determined, there's the word, dispensations, or rules of life which define man's responsibilities in successive ages. These, again the word, dispensations, are not ways of salvation, but rather are divinely ordered stewardships by which God directs man according to his purpose. Three of these dispensations, the law, the church, and the kingdom, are the subjects of detailed revelation in Scripture. A quick poll here, if you don't mind me asking, and if you don't mind just being very honest with me, how many of you have heard the word dispensation before? How many of you have a definition of it? Some of you do. How many of you have ever heard that word and said, I don't know what that, that means. <laughs> Be honest. It's okay. It's all right. It means different things to different people, but we're going to use it and we're going to define it tonight. You might have a general idea of it. Most of you probably do. You probably do because pastor has preached from a very dispensational perspective. It's in our Constitution. I believe this part of the Constitution he actually preached through, but it was, it was right before we came back here to this church a couple years ago. I should probably clarify, we were out of the area. It's not like we left and just came back, you know. Uh, we were out of the area uh, when we moved back to this area. <laughs> the passage I just read, though, captures, captured in our Constitution, is part of our church's statement of faith. It's what we say as a church we will teach and what we will believe. So we will use our Constitution's definition, for it's very good. I know that it needs my approval, I, but it's very good. See how our church defines dispensations? Look at that definition. 
They are rules of life which define man's responsibilities in successive ages. They are stewardships by which God directs man according to his purpose. As I've already mentioned, there are those opposed to dispensational theology. And I do believe those who oppose it, they can still be Bible-believing, regenerated Christians. I think independent, fundamental Baptists are very uncharitable when we begin to declare those who are not dispensational as heretics. Or when we judge those who interpret the Bible to be a series of covenants, when we label them as unbiblical. Now, I know that's hard for some people to hear. My point is, a Calvinist can still go to heaven. You better believe they've been ordained there. <laughs> Small joke. But they, I, I think we're wrong to say a Calvinist is a heresy. And just though, like, you can get outside of the Bible with dispensationalism, you can get outside of the Bible with hyper-Calvinism. So we label them often as unbiblical. And while I believe their interpretation to be wrong, there is a certain amount of hubris required to label those who interpret the Bible differently than me as a heretic. But it's an easy thing to do. It's easy to use the ad hominem attacks of people that have a different theology, a different understanding of the theology. Now, to be sure, not every difference in opinion is a value. I don't want to be saying that. I'm not saying, hey, everybody has their own theology. You may interpret it this way. You may interpret it that way. We'll all just try to figure it out together. No, there are wrong interpretations of the Bible. I'm not saying that we are all right. I am saying that there are those who believe differently from me and are still godly theologians who I believe are saved, and we will see them in heaven. It reminds me of a story about George Whitfield, that eloquent evangelist of the First Great Awakening in, our, in the New World during the 18th century. He was a staunch Calvinist, George Whitfield was. He vehemently disagreed with another evangelist named John Wesley. They were contemporaries of, of each other. In fact, they went to seminary together. In fact, John Wesley was very influential in the salvation of George Whitfield in England. John Wesley, the father of the Methodist, was an Arminian. They disagreed on the doctrines of grace. So when Whitfield one day was asked if he expected to see uh, uh, John Wesley in heaven, Whitfield quickly responded with, most likely not. But Whitfield quickly followed with, because Wesley will be so much closer to the throne of God for his work for the gospel that I don't think I'll be able to see him. An Arminian and a Calvinist. So, the point is, there is some latitude here. For example, Charles Spurgeon, he was not a dispensationalist with a capital D in the form in the formal sense, but he was dispensational in his preaching, and he was a Calvinist. And you may have heard of men like John MacArthur, who are admittedly mixed, they admittedly mix dispensational theology with their Calvinism. This is why I prefer dispensational theology to the term dispensationalism. 
I can be dispensational. We can read people who are dispensational, and men throughout history have been dispensational. But let's take a look at those who outright decry dispensational theology. Within conservatively theological circles, the majority of these would be what we call covenant theologians. Even this is a misleading term because I also believe that in covenants and I am a theologian. But just like dispensational theology can devolve into negative dispensationalism, so covenant theology can quickly devolve into covenantalism. In short, covenantalism teaching that God gives his grace through covenants. So the promises of the covenant remain the same throughout time. But the participants change. So you've got a covenant in the Old Testament, the Noahic covenant. We reap the benefits of no flood. You've got the Mosaic covenant. If you do this, I'll do that. Well, they didn't do it. And so what they're saying is God transfers that covenant now to the church. And while the participants change, the church is now a beneficiary of the covenant. Now, though, the promises are the same. So when Israel failed to keep the covenant, God established his covenant with the church, and we all inherit all the blessings promised to Israel. The church, according to covenantalists, become a de facto new Israel. Though covenantalists have many disagreements with dispensationalists, the primary disagreement is over the doctrine of grace. How does God demonstrate his grace through history? Covenantalists accuse dispensationalists of focusing so much on man and ignoring, or ignoring what they say they cheapen or we cheapen God's grace that comes through his promises or covenants. Dispensationalists accuse covenantalists of focusing so much on God's grace that we, they ignore man's responsibility. I do like what Spurgeon said when he said, why do we have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man at odds with each other when they should be holding hands as friends? I just quoted a Calvinist. So, it's this idea of grace. The covenants will claim that grace cannot be resisted, so there is nothing for man to steward or manage in any age. He either has been given grace or he hasn't. If he has, he will not, he cannot ignore it. But the truth is both covenantalists and dispensationalists do have a high regard of grace. I think we have a high regard of grace as dispensationalists. The fact that God would even engage with man is grace. You can see this in how C.I. Schofield defines it. He defines a dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Again, Schofield's definition points to man's response to revelation. The fact that God would reveal himself to man is grace. Hence, dispensationalism fails if it does not have a deep understanding and appreciation for grace. But how that grace is given, that's a different lecture altogether. But there's that pesky-ism that we need to deal with on the end of dispensationalism and now conventional, covenantalism. It is true that dispensationalism has received some negative reviews, but so has covenantalism. Part of this is earned by both systems. Dispensationalism is earned by 
how literal interpretations of the Bible have resulted in literal neglect of the rest of the scriptures. Simply because they were written to and for humanity in a different dispensation. In other words, I don't need to pay attention to the Old Testament because that wasn't written to me, is what a what dispensationalism can lead towards. But we would call those, we're not going to call them dispensationalists. We are going to use the term hyper-dispensationalists for them. And we're going to address them in a, in a moment. For covenantalism, the negative reviews are earned by wholesale adoptions of the doctrines of grace, or what we would call Reformed theology or Calvinism. Primarily, you've heard it, it's the acrostic tulip. Total depravity, universal election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saint. Again, a different lecture altogether. But the word dispensationalism cannot be rejected even if it does carry some baggage. We do use it in our church constitution and our statement of faith. For sure, the term dispensational is a biblical term. To appreciate the meaning of the word dispensational, a look at the word's etymology is in order. The word dispensation is a transliterated word in our English language. It comes from the Latin dispensatio, meaning to weigh out or dispense. It was the word the Latin Vulgate used to translate the word, the Greek word oikonomo. oikonomo. Now, that word oikonomo may have a familiar sound to it. It is the word oiko, which means house. And nomo to rule, it is literally the rule for an administer to administer the affairs of the house. It's where we get our English word from oikonomo, we get our English word economy. Economy. Home economics is actually a redundant word. Because oikonomo in Greek is the administration of the house. For four this, used, this word, oikonomo, is used in Scripture four times to be exact. Paul uses the word strictly to describe himself. He does not use it as a term for an age. Three of the four times that Paul uses the word, he is describing how he was a steward of the grace of God to the church. This is what the term literally means, stewardship, economics, dispensation. The word is used to refer to stewardship, management, or oversight of property. So the idea of dispensational, as we use it in theology, is how man has managed or stewarded the revelation of God to him. What have you done with what God has told you? When I was in history, we were given the definition of history, or when I was in history major in college, we were given the definition by one of our professors that history is the story of what man has done with the time that God has given him. Dispensational is what have you done with what God has told you during that time. God has revealed himself at different times and in different manners throughout history. It is the economy in which man is responding to the revelation of God. In many ways, that word economy is much clearer and more descriptive than the word dispensational. Now, any anti-dispensationalist or even a non-dispensationalist accuse dispensationalism of being a new doctrine and not at all considered by the early church fathers. Now, I agree that the term dispensational as a formal system is relatively new, 
but the concept is not. Though a man named John Darby, a minister of the Plymouth Brethren, certainly systematized it, and men like C.I. Schofield, if you have a Schofield Study Bible, or Charles Ryrie, if you have a Ryrie Study Bible, have been influential in teaching dispensationalism, these men did not invent it, they didn't create it, they didn't even discover it. The Bible is dispensational. This Bible is the story of what man has done and stewarded the divine revelation. Consider the words of Justin Martyr in the second century. He says, if one should ask, if one should wish to ask why, since Enoch, Noah, with his sons, and all the others in similar circumstances, who neither were circumcised nor kept the Sabbath, pleased God, God demanded by other leaders and by giving of the law after the lapse of so many generations that this who lived between the times of Abraham and Moses be justified by circumcision and the other ordinances to wit the Sabbath and sacrifices and libations and offerings. He says Noah, his sons, Adam, or Enoch, they didn't have to do what Moses was asked to do. He says there was a different plan. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Augustine all speak of dispensations in their theological works. They didn't invent the theology either. If you're going to read the Bible, you cannot help but see that God has dealt differently with man through the ages and man has responded in different ways. To be clear, man has been required to respond differently in different ages. For example, while men at all times and in all ages have been called to repentance, the Israelites under the covenant were instructed to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament. The church under the New Testament have been instructed to offer themselves as a living sacrifice. Now you will recall that our church constitu constitution mentions three dispensations by name. Remember what they were? They are law, the church, and the kingdom. There are many who would disagree on the number of dispensations, but we do know for sure that there are these three. We also know that we are currently in the dispensation of the church. So that will be the focus of the lecture from this point forward, which takes us back to Paul. Remember that dispensationalism, according to our church's statement of faith, is the rules of life which man's, define man's responsibilities. If there are rules, then, to successfully prosecute our time on this earth, we need to know what those rules are. We need to know the doctrine, the teaching of the church age, that dispensation we are currently in. This is why Paul is so fundamentally important. Paul wrote strictly during and for the church age. Remember our three ages? Law, church, and kingdom. Paul is writing to and for the church. So we begin first to consider those who abuse the Pauline epistles. Those who abuse the Pauline epistles. I mentioned I would deal with hyper-dispensationalists, and now we are going to. This is the first abuse. This is what gives ism to dispensationalism. When it comes to considering the word of God through the lens of dispensational theology, there is a tendency towards what is called hyper-dispensationalism. In short, hyper-dispensationalists reject, for example, the other books of the Bible, the gospel, Acts, and so on, from having any doctrinal value. Now listen to what I'm saying here. This is a hyper-dispensationalist. Not all dispensationalists reject other parts of the Bible. But if you're not careful, you can get, this is one of the things that dispensationalists will take you if it is unchecked. Let's consider a couple passages of Scripture to illustrate how a hyper-dispensationalist would work. So I've chosen three. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Now, these passages are representational of all three dispensations, the law, the church, and the kingdom. And they are all very well known, often quoted, and they all have to deal with our response to God. So let me read them to you. Isaiah 1.8, Come now, and let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me ask right now, does anybody know where Matthew 6.33 occurs in the pericope, in the passage of Scripture that it is? That is part of what? The Sermon on the Mount. Okay? You'll see many things in there that it says, Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's very important as you look through the Sermon on the Mount. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we've got three passages here, one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospels, and one from the Pauline epistles. Now the hyper-dispensationalists will look at these passages, and correctly, they would rightly divide them. The Isaiah passage would be written to Israel under the dispensation of the law. The Matthew passage would be written to Israel under the dispensation of the kingdom. Which you say, wait, 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 wait. Matthew is not in the kingdom. Matthew is all about if Israel would have accepted their Messiah. He was coming, as Matthew wrote, to be a king. But Israel rejected their Messiah. But even though they rejected their Messiah, they will, they, he will still keep his promises to set up a kingdom. And then there's the book, the passage in Ephesians. It is written to the church under the dispensation of grace. So far, the hyper-dispensationalist hyper is not wrong. They've divided these, but this is where they err. They hold the Pauline epistle, in this case, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as a representative, in such high regard that they claim the Isaiah and Matthew passages do not apply to the church at all. Those passages are, have no doctrinal value. They were not written to the church and thus do not apply to the church. Here's an important statement that I think we should make. Just because things were not written to us does not mean they were not written for us. The hyper-dispensationalists tend to reject anything outside of those writings that were written specifically to the church under the dispensation of the church. To the hyper-dispensationalists, the Isaiah passage only informs us of repentance under the dispensation of the law. And the Matthew passage tells us what discipleship will look like in the kingdom. But neither help us to live here and now in the church age. And I disagree. This is problematic, and this is why I believe they are abusing Paul. They are elevating his writings so high, they are sacrificing context that informed even Paul himself. Paul could not have written Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without a grasp of Isaiah. Those passages, um, I'm sorry, Paul did not write in a vacuum without any understanding of the Old Testament. A hyper-dispensational view also neglects other doctrines that are used in the church. For example, we do get the doctrine of salvation from the Gospels. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, but have everlasting life. If John wasn't written for us, what do we do with that? 
Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Jesus gave the gospel, and his, apostles, his disciples heard him and confirmed it to us. We understand the Great Commission because of the Gospels. Baptism is more completely understood by reading the entire New Testament. It would be completely neglected, which hyper-dispensationalists do. They would neglect baptism if we were to only read just from the Pauline epistles. We need to be aware of this abuse of Paul. Placing such a high priority on his writings at the expense of other scripture is to fail to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Yes, discernment is necessary, but, what is, but that is why rightly dividing the word of truth requires study and work. It is rigorous, but it is necessary. And if we're not careful in the rigor, we are left with Old Testament stories that lack any doctrinal value, and we have nothing in the Gospels but moralizing events. But the second danger... The second danger we need to consider are those who confuse the Pauline epistles. Confuse the Pauline epistles. Now, honestly, this next danger is not a complete swing of the theological pendulum from hyper-dispensationalism. Hyper, uh, it is not as if there are, like, uh, there are the hyper-dispensationalists who neglect the rest of Scripture and only focus on the Paul, Pauline epistles, and then this group only focuses on the rest of Scripture and ignores the Pauline epistles. It's not like that at all. The problem with this next danger is it interprets Paul through the lens of covenant theology that I had mentioned before. It places too much emphasis on the Old Testament doctrines that were given to Israel and applies that to everything Paul was teaching. In other words, because Paul was writing from his context as a first century Jew, we have to interpret everything Paul said through first century Judaism. In fact, they would even go so far as to say that the Pauline epistles provide a new and improved covenant with similar elements to the old. For example, infant baptism signifies the birth in the new covenant just as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. The church is the chosen people who accepted the Messiah to replace the chosen nation of Israel who rejected the Messiah. There is a one-for-one -one exchange of all the old covenant promises with new covenant promises. This confusion of, the Paul, of Paul's doctrines leads to many theological errors. And I think there are three main errors that come from this. First, it logically concludes that the kingdom is now. This provides a host of issues, the least of which is that what, we do, what do we do with the book of Revelation? They view the book as allegorical. But if the kingdom is now, then there's no room for a premillennial eschatology, there is no rapture of the church. There is no tribulation. We are in the kingdom. Because we have the covenant. These are logical conclusions of covenantalism and require some theological gymnastics to get around clear teachings in Scripture on certain eschatological events. But secondly, and this is an eschatological concern, there is no future for Israel in covenantalism. The current state, the political state of Israel, is strictly political. It has no spiritual value as a chosen people. All those promises of land and kingdom have been transferred to the church. Again, this poses some problems for promises to Israel that have yet to be fulfilled and are incoherent if we take those promises and apply them to the church. 
But the final error is more theological, is theological, but it's also social. Covenantalism denigrates to anti-Semitism. This is a strong accusation, and I want to be careful how I say it. I don't want to accuse all covenantalists of being anti-Semitic. However, it can be used to justify anti-Semitism. While the dispensational belief God is, God's work is not through with Israel, the covenantalists believe God has rejected Israel in favor of the church. Covenantalism paves the way for blaming the Jews for the death of Christ. It is what some have even used to explain why, not justify the Holocaust, but explain why the Holocaust happened. This can be seen in some of the earlier writings of Martin Luther. Though he did, not, he did soften his views on Jews later in life, in 1545, he wrote a pamphlet titled, The Jews and Their Lies, claiming that Jews thirsted for Christian blood and argued for the slaying of the Jews, and the Nazis reprinted it in 1935. At minimum, covenantalists confuse the teachings of Paul by not rightly dividing the word of truth. They confuse those promises to Israel as promises to the church, and this reaps theological error. It was reformers like Martin Luther who held some very strong views on the Jews that has caused then a resurgence in considering Paul and his writings, which introduces our third danger, those who have endeavored to diffuse the Pauline epistles. What do I mean by diffuse? Is that they have tried to soften some of the things Paul said so that they are more palatable. And this is what is called the new perspective on Paul. To answer the question I asked early in the lecture, is there a new perspective on Paul? Well, not really. The idea has been around for almost 40 years, which in my humble estimation is young. It goes something like this. The reformers, specifically John Calvin and Martin Luther, read Paul through the perspective of their experiences with the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught justification by works, keeping the sacraments and so on, they interpreted Paul as medieval churchmen would and not as a first century Jew. Or to be specific, as Paul, a first century Jew, would have meant to what he said. Therefore, the argument goes, we need a new perspective on Paul that accounts for his first, Paul's first century Jewish context. So far, this actually isn't a bad approach. Shouldn't we look at it the way Paul looked at it? Shouldn't we read Paul through Jewish eyes? I think we would all agree on that. But the accusation of the new perspective of Paul is that the reformers did not understand Paul's context, but rather read the writings of Paul and considered it with their own context, protesting a Catholic church who did, not, who did teach that justification comes from keeping the laws. So Paul was not necessarily concerned. This is what the new perspective says. Paul was not concerned with the Judaizers who insisted that converts to Christianity be subject to Jewish laws, specifically circumcision. That wasn't what Paul was concerned about. But we do know Paul was at odds with members of the Jewish faith. Even Peter the Apostle, because of their insistence on circumcising Gentiles who converted to Christianity. Acts 15 and Galatians 2 provide great detail on this controversy. The new perspective on Paul says that first century Judaism did not actually believe that you had to keep the law. And it was not a religion with a works-based salvation. Rather, you kept the law because you were part of the covenant. The new perspective on Paul claims that Paul's problem with Judaism was then that they believed only Jews were covenant keepers, thus only Jews could be saved, and they did not understand, as Paul did, 
that salvation was now extended to the Gentile. Gentiles could now keep the law as a sign of their salvation. So let's dissect this real quick. First, the New Perspective has a hard time dealing with the passages such as Ephesians 2.8 that we've read earlier. So they redefine those terms. And one term they redefine is grace. The New Perspective says that Paul did not use the Greek word charis to mean grace, as we use it to mean unmerited favor, but rather Paul used charis, that Greek word, simply as a favor. What was the favor? They were allowed to be in the covenant. This is why the new perspective on Paul comes out of the covenantalist system. And it is not widely accepted even by those of that system because it attacks the doctrines of grace. So read Ephesians 2.8 with the word favor now as opposed to grace. It softens it. It completely diffuses it. For by a favor you are saved through faith. Further, the word faith is redefined. And instead of faith meaning an action of faith in God, it is keeping the faith or to be faithful. So the new perspective on Paul really emphasized being in the covenant as the measure of salvation, but for by a favor you are saved through being faithful. This introduces another new problem of new perspective that is problematic. The problem with this new perspective is that it teaches that the Jews kept their salvation through covenant keeping. Because the covenant was given to the nation, the logical conclusion is that community, not individual relationship, is what justifies you. Paul then carries this over to his doctrine of the church. Salvation is also corporate as members of the church or keepers of the new covenant. In fact, the new perspective decries any sort of personal relationship you would have with God. The relationship we have with Christ comes only through a membership in the community of believers. This concept diffuses much of the tougher language of Paul regarding grace, repentance, and redemption that have been characteristic of biblical theology since Paul's epistles were first read. There's a lot more we could say about the new perspective, but we will have to leave it here so that we can address this final danger and we will be done. One final danger in our contemporary theological world are those who refuse the Pauline epistles. Now, this is admittedly a very liberal view that Paul taught a completely different doctrine than that of Jesus. In this view, they refuse to link Paul to Jesus, and they reject Paul's doctrines as built on the foundation laid by Jesus Christ. This past fall, I took a class called From Jesus to Constantine, A History of Early Christianity, taught by a Dr. Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. In that class, Dr. Ehrman described how many contemporary scholars choose to approach Paul. Now, he was not advocate, advocating this view, but this is what he said. Some scholars call him, Paul, the second founder of Christianity. The Apostle Paul did not simply repeat the teachings of Jesus. In fact, when you read Paul's writings, you rarely find quotations of Jesus' teachings at all. Paul's religion was different from that of Jesus to the extent that he did not repeat Jesus' teachings of religion. He taught about Jesus specifically. He taught about Jesus' own death and resurrection, which in Paul's view was a death and resurrection that could bring about salvation of the world. Since this belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus lies at the heart of Christian religion, some scholars maintain that without Paul, Christianity would never have been anything other than just another Jewish sect. It was just Paul's interpretation. And he happened to write the most, so he won out in the end. So on one hand, you have the hyper-dispensationalist view that abuses the Pauline epistles 
by elevating them above Scripture. You have the covenantalists who confuse Pauline epistles with Old Testament promises. You have the new perspective on Paul that diffuses what seems to be tough language. But now you have those who refuse to put Pauline epistles in line with the teachings of Jesus. Without Jesus, you would have no Paul. They believe Paul simply created his own religion, and thus the Pauline writings are reworking of Jesus' teaching to a makeover, if you will. But none of these views are biblical. They all violate Paul's message to Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Scripture may be profitable for different things, but it is all profitable and it is entirely in its entirety, and it is what furnishes and completes the man of God. To the liberal view, it violates Paul's own acknowledgement of his purpose. He was to preach Christ. He said in Galatians 1, 15 through 16, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. He was not preaching his own message. He was preaching the message of Christ. So how do we use Paul? Let me give them real quick three things, and I won't elaborate. They're self-explanatory. One, we need to recognize Paul's authority. Two, we need to recognize Paul's mission. And three, we need to recognize Paul's message. He came under the authority of God to preach to us, teach us, to write to us. His mission was to the Gentile specifically. And his message was one that the Gentile was now grafted in. He is the one who taught the church what to believe. So what do we do with Paul? We recognize his authority, his mission, and his message. Anything less, and we will abuse, confuse, diffuse, and refuse all his writings. In summary, we will misuse the Pauline epistles. And in doing so, we stain and wrinkle our understanding of a glorious church. Paul was giving, given to the New Testament, given to us, to the New Testament church. His epistles are for the perfecting of the saints and for our edification. There is another fundamental error if we neglect the Pauline epistles, and we will quickly develop then a romantic view of the past, and we will establish a bad, a bad eschatological view. What is eschatology, you ask? Let's come back next week. That'll be the topic of next week's lecture. What happens when we form a bad eschatology? Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.